the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, I ask that we could be provoked by this word today. Provoke us into a new way of thinking, a new way of living. Lord, we do not want to just be abstract Christians. We want to be radical Christians following a radical Savior to the cross. And we know that in that process, we might lose some folks along the way. There might be division. But God, I know that in your healing hand, that whenever you prune something and divide something, it's ultimately for more growth. So I pray that the division that we experience from this word would be something that would bring growth and health to all of us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. All right, here we go. I've preached a couple of sermons, and a lot of times people come back later and they say, you remember that sermon you preached? And half of the time, I don't remember them, but I'm glad that other people do. And usually the title is what they remember. So I preached a sermon a while ago called Rich Wounds or Beautiful Wounds, and I preached a sermon called Somebody Say Something, and this one I think, I hope, I pray, is going to be one that is remembered, and I'm going to call it Which Jesus. If there was ever a sermon that had my soul uh, really labor over, it was this one. It is this one. So over here to the right, you can see your left, my right, you can see this very pruned palm tree. We do not have a green thumb. This was in our office for a few weeks, and it started to die right away. So Diana put it outside because the leaves were all brown, and it was looking very bad. And she put it outside, and there's a lovely, wonderful lady who takes care of all the plants here on the grounds. I don't know who she, I forget her name. She's wonderful, though. And she definitely has a green thumb. And as soon as we put this palm tree out there, We came back the next day, and all the leaves were chopped. And I thought, wow, she doesn't like us. Like, this is a, I almost took it as an insult, but what I didn't know is that she's saving this plant. Because so often the division that is given to a plant is the very thing that will save it in the end. Use that as a metaphor. We're going to come back to it later, okay? That there's a healing in division. There's a healing in the cutting. Uh, Jesus tells his apostles here who commit themselves to following Jesus. He says this, you should be prepared for three things, rejection, persecution, and then he also adds this into the mix. He says, be prepared for division. I am going to be divisive in your life. How, Stanley Auerwas has a wonderful statement on this. He said, not only will governors and kings hate and persecute the apostles, But family, the family, will be fractured by loyalty to him. Now, I don't want you to raise your hands. I don't want you to um, do anything demonstrative because I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. But I have a feeling many of you today know what it's like to be divided over Jesus. And you know what that division is like even in your familial familial circles. Um, Family divisions happen all the time. Some families are half Steelers fans half Browns fans. And I'm not going to mention any names, but Stephanie and Nelson, I think, uh, might be a good example of that. Where Silas is going to end up, I don't know. We will pray for the Steelers. Um, uh, No, I'm just playing. I'm playing. Uh, So so we we can be divided over that. I know some families are divided over things like mayonnaise and Miracle Whip. Personally, I think if you like Miracle Whip, you need to come to the altar later on and spend some time here because mayonnaise is clearly better. Can I get an amen? Okay, some family division. Maddie announced to us a few years ago that she was going to be a Celtics fan. And at the time, I was at the pinnacle of being a Cavs fan. 
You, you're a Celtics fan, yeah, and, and that's cool, but that's a family division. But these family divisions are ones that we can make a joke about. It's another thing to be divided over something like Jesus. And that's where it starts to get uncomfortable. And so I think everybody knows when you go to a Thanksgiving dinner, they tell you not to talk about two things, right? You don't talk about politics, and you don't talk about religion. And there's a reason for that. Division over some things are funny. Division over other things like Christ are awkward and painful. And the original division went like this. Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and he turns to the disciples, and he says, Who do men say that I am? And this is still the division that we have today. What kind of Jesus? Which Jesus do you follow? Who do you say that he is, right? Some have a Jesus that completely, completely lets them remain racist, bigoted, greedy, uh, apathetic to the pain and suffering of the world. Some have a Jesus that is totally cool with the prosperity gospel that we see happening on television and in certain circles of the church. So Jesus is still asking that question, who do men say that I am? Hi, Mom. Hi, Mel. By the way, um, Diane and I are going to be traveling. Let me, I got to pause here. We're going to be traveling and we're going to be coming back home next Saturday. But I, I want you to put your hands together because I asked Melvin if he would preach and he agreed to preach so Mel's going to be preaching next Saturday, and I'm so thankful for that. Those of you who know Mel know that he's one of the smartest guys that you know, and, and I'm so excited he's going to share. Let me continue with this. Um, who do men say that I am is the question. Who do you think Jesus is? Herod wanted a Jesus that was amusing. Pilate wanted a Jesus that was agreeable and cooperative with empire. The people wanted a Jesus that was a violent revolutionary. That's why when they shouted Barabbas, Barabbas's full name was Jesus Barabbas. There were a lot of people named Yeshua. And Barabbas's full name was Jesus Barabbas. And when they shouted, give us Barabbas, they chose the wrong Jesus. And I would like to tell you that that doesn't happen anymore. But I think people still to this day are choosing the wrong Jesus. Jesus comes along and he says, I'm going to force you to make a decision. I'm going to force you to make a decision. Jesus is the great divider. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the cross is God's sword. So when Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, don't listen to those yokels who want to tell you that Jesus advocated violence. If you just keep reading, you discover that he's talking about division in family. Amen? So he's talking about dividing families, that the division he brings is that specific the cross is the cruciform way. It's radical, it's narrow, it's self-sacrificial, it requires that you love your enemy. And today, most of us, including this preacher, have a tendency to craft Jesus into our own image. The Jesus we follow wouldn't even have an awkward table conversation, let alone be arrested, let alone go to the cross. McKnight calls this the Jesus that would never have been crucified. He said, the way people paint Jesus today would never have had him draw the fire that he drew. This is a tamed Christ, a domesticated Christ, a nationalized Christ, a colonized Christ. I'm going to get back to that. So here's the question for you. Which Jesus are you following? And here's the litmus test. If your Jesus would not be crucified you're probably following the wrong Jesus. If your Jesus wouldn't wind up before the pilots of today, 
under question because they're afraid of this guy. You're probably following the wrong Jesus. Which Jesus are you following? Is your Jesus crucifiable? Is your Jesus' love so radical that it would trouble the powers that be? Or is your Jesus apathetic? Or worse yet, is your Jesus simply a chaplain to empire? A chaplain to the nation? A chaplain to the powers that be? Okay, that's the preachy part of this. I want to tell you a story now that really shifted my thinking, really changed me and, and troubled me. I've been reading, uh, rereading parts of Howard Thurman's The Jesus of the Disinherited. Howard Thurman was a black mystic prophet, theologian, scholar, professor, lecturer, who influenced a lot of people, but most notably Dr. Martin Luther King. Howard Thurman uh, tells numerous stories, one of which he said he was, I didn't know this, he was a child, and his dad deeply loved God, his dad deeply loved Christ, but his dad felt like if he would become a part of the Baptist church, which is what his family was, that it would, it would kind of ruin his relationship with God. So he was never fully baptized into the church. Howard Thurman was seven years old. His dad came home after work one day, and he could hear what they called, he lived in Daytona, Florida. He could hear in his lungs something called the death rattle. He had double pneumonia in his lungs. His dad walked through the doors of the house and fell over, and very shortly thereafter was in the bed of their home dying. And his mother asked Howard Thurman's dad, she said, Saul Solomon Thurman, are you ready to die? Thurman said his dad sat up a little bit and said, I have been a man in this world all of my life. I'm not afraid of dying. And he passed away. A few days later, the grandmother of Howard Thurman tried to get Howard's dad buried in the Baptist church. And the preacher looked at both Howard Thurman's mother and grandmother and said, that man is not going to be buried in this church. He was not a part of the Baptist church. I'm not burying him. Thurman's grandmother was smart. She knew preachers come and go, but deacons stay. So she went to the deacons of the church. She said, you're going to bury this man in the church. The deacons made the church bury Howard Thurman's father However, the pastor wouldn't do it. It had to be a traveling evangelist. Get this. This traveling evangelist preached the sermon, and the whole message was about how Howard Thurman's dad was burning in hell. So here's a seven-year-old sitting in a pew, weeping over his father, while an evangelist tells the whole church that his daddy's burning in hell right now. He capitalized on the moment. And Howard Thurman began to weep. He starts crying, and he looks up at his mom, and he kept saying over and over again, this is from Thurman's own testimony. He looked at his mom, and he said, Mama, this man doesn't know Dada. This man doesn't know Dada. He's crying. Howard said that from that day on, he said, if I ever grew up to be a man, I knew I would have nothing to do with the Christ of that church. Essentially, here's what happened. This was the gift that that horrible evangelist and pastor gave Howard. They showed him the wrong Jesus. And whenever you're shown the wrong Jesus, there's a good chance something's going to light inside of you that's going to try to find out who the real Jesus is. Let me fast forward a little bit. 1926, Howard Thurman is now a college student, seminarian, 
A few years later, he finds himself, I'm talking like 15 years later, 20 years later, he finds himself teaching in some of the greatest lecture halls in the country. And a part of that is he's sent as a delegate to a, a, a nation called Ceylon, and he gets fascinated with this professor who's the, the principal of a law school there. And the professor says, Mr. Thurman, can I have you for one second? He pulls Howard Thurman into his office and he says, explain something to me. I am a Hindu. You are a Christian. Explain this to me. The people who came and took your forefathers away from their land and stole them as slaves were Christians. The people who sold those slaves on auction blocks were Christians. The men and the women who condoned it, who bought those slaves for their plantations and homes, were Christians. The people who steal your children and sell those babies on an auction block are Christians. And now he's in the 40s, and he says, even now, those who segregate you and persecute you and lynch you and burn you are Christians. He goes on to say, one of my students went to your country and they brought back a clip, a piece of paper from your newspaper. And the story, the head story in the newspaper was this. Local church pauses worship so that members can go and lynch somebody. They stop worship so that they can dismiss their members to go lynch somebody. And then they come back and resume worship in Jesus' name. And the Hindu says this to Thurman. He says, Sir, I do not wish to insult you, but I see you as a traitor to all dark people of the world. Howard Thurman steps back. What do I say to this? What do I say because he knows that this gentleman, this Hindu, is absolutely right? And in a moment of wisdom, which is all Thurman has to offer, He says, sir, I want to tell you that there's a difference between Jesus as an object and Jesus as a subject. He says, if Jesus is simply an object, then all you have to do is stare at him and direct some emotions towards him. And dare I say, that is the Christianity of this land. However, if Jesus is a subject, then we have to study him. We have to locate him in time and climate and culture. We have to inquire into the content and context of his teaching. And when you do that, you discover that Jesus was a poor, brown-skinned Palestinian Jew announcing the acceptable year of the Lord in an occupied holy land, desecrated by empire, while identifying with the socially, economically, and ethnically oppressed. Now that's Jesus as a subject. But in America, Frederick Douglass would talk about this. When you only have Jesus as an object, then American Christianity is called, he calls it, the boldest of all frauds. He said, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Now, here's the deal. I just created tension. I just created a problem, which is this. 
We have a country where 72% of folks profess some kind of Jesus. But the question we have to ask is, which Jesus? I would love to tell you that missing the mark on Jesus is only relegated and delegated and and allocated, I mean, to that group in the 40s, (laughs) to that group in the late 1800s, to that group in the early 1800s. I would love to tell you that they were the ones that got Jesus wrong and not us. But today... How dare we be so ignorant? We are still missing the mark on who Jesus is. And I don't care if you take a baby away from a mother on an auction block or a baby away from a mother at a border. You're missing Jesus. And I know that you can have laws, but Martin Luther King is just quoting another philosopher. I think Aquinas said it. An unjust law is no law at all. And we can't use laws as red tape for injustice. I posted this week on Facebook. I'm getting a little bit more vocal now because my soul's getting ready for it. I can handle it now. But I posted on Facebook all these verses, Bible verses, that talk about how you treat the foreigner among you. Jesus would not identify with power because he did not identify with power. He was the one who identified with those on the underside of power, and Thurman calls them those with their backs against the wall, the disinherited. So the reason why Christians can do these things, Thurman said to this Hindu, was because they are believing in the wrong Jesus. And let that be a warning to all of us that Jesus is still calling you to step into the divisive circles that he, he, he possesses. Like, it's not going to change. The love of Christ is so radical that you will find yourselves in that weird conversation with your dad, in that weird conversation with your mom. Now, here's the deal. We could hear a sermon like this and say, okay, I'm ready. I'm fired up. I'm ready to go. That's not it. If you're fired up and angry, you're not ready. Because Jesus is still the peaceable Christ. So here's what I want to offer to you on my way out. Make sure that when you step into the divisive nature of Christ and you're rightly dividing things, faithfully, hopefully, as best as you can, make sure you do it with the loving hand of the vine pruner. Make sure you do it. You can be kind and cut at the same time. And that's an art form. A lot of people just want to cut. But you can be kind and cut at the same time. Now, there are going to be some folks that no matter how kind you are, they're just going to pay attention to the cut. And they're going to say, how dare you cut my palm? I love that palm. That was my palm. It was dying and dirty and had mites all over it, but that was mine. But the loving hand of the vine dresser, right, working through you, can sit down at a table and say, what would Jesus do? Now, if Jesus is simply the object of your faith and not the subject, you're going to miss it. I saw, I follow this Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers, and there was a well-known praise and worship church, and this is by no means throwing shade in their direction, only in what I saw. And there's a well-known praise and worship leader. She's like the darling check of that church, right? And she's wearing a $500 Gucci belt with a buckle this big while her arms are extended wide open, right? So here she is with Gucci, The reason why she can do this, while in California you see the most outrageous poverty, the reason why she can do this is because Jesus is the object of her faith and not the subject. 
If she would ever let Jesus become the subject of her faith, she would quickly realize that this poor, brown, Palestinian, oppressed Jew living on the underside of power is always there for the least of these. Just read Matthew 25, right? But because he's simply an object, she doesn't have to hold him in any context. All she has to do is stare and direct some emotion at him. Church, we got to do something about this. We have to do something about this. People are dying. The psychological trauma that's happening to children right now in this country is outrageous. Now, I know. Here's why preachers don't preach this. Because you lose some folks. And when you lose some folks, you lose money. So job security is on the line. So nobody speaks up. But I got two children, and I want them to know that their daddy cared enough, hopefully, about poor people. That when it was his time, I don't want to be one of those preachers who lived in 1968 and didn't say anything. Just living in this veil of silence. I want to be the one who is willing to be on that chopping block following the divisive Christ. It's not a political issue. It's only a political issue if that's your primary lens. If, If politics isn't your primary lens, then the church and Christ is your lens. And it's not about being political, it's about being faithful. I had a friend named Caleb in 2003. He was in our Easter musical, and we had him singing. Caleb came up to me, this is 2003, this is right after shock and awe, right a couple years after 9-11. I was so violent and angry at that time. I wanted to enlist into the military. I was ready. If you guys remember 9-11, we were all ready. All the young men were ready. Sign us up. Send us out. We want to kill some folks. Angry. I remember standing in the back of the sanctuary. Caleb is right here. I'm speaking this war rhetoric, this violent rhetoric. And Caleb, who was raised in the church, he, he turned to me and he said this. I'll never forget it. He said, you really think That's what Jesus would want you to do? You really think that's what Jesus wants? Now his words cut me. And in that moment, I was deeply offended. I can still remember it to this day. Those were cutting words, but they were healing words. Because for the first time, somebody loved me enough to say, which Jesus are you following, my friend? If you think the world is going to be healed by violence, then we're probably dealing with two different Jesuses. And he called me on it. I was deeply hurt, but then something happened. Those words stuck with me, and two years later, I was walking down the hall or down the aisle of Barnes and Noble, and I saw this book. I looked at it, and I thought, oh, interesting. It was called The Irresistible Revolution by Shane Claiborne. And I grabbed that book off the shelf, and I read the introduction, and I said, no one's ever told me about this Jesus, this radical Palestinian Jew. This nonviolent Jew. And I said, I'm going to study this. I brought it home. I learned about a different Jesus. And that Jesus that I learned about then has radically changed my life. I was comfortable. He disturbed me. And it was a beautiful, healing disturbance in the force, Obi-Wan. Let your life be like that plant. You're going to hear me preach things that you absolutely do not agree with. You're going to hear other preachers preach things that you are going to absolutely not agree with. But if they point you in the direction of Jesus as the subject of your faith, giving context and history and background so that you can know which Jesus you are following, they're doing the Lord's work. Let it be so. Let it be so.
Well, the good part about the sacred commons is I don't think I'm going to get fired from that one. <laughs> Maybe. Be kind. And I wrote this down as my ending thought. Be kind because you were that person. So when you're sitting at the table with the person who's following the Jesus you used to follow, be kind. And in your kindness, wield the blade well. And all God's people can say, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sacred Commons podcast. You can find out more about us at our website, thesacredcommons.com. If you feel connected to this ministry in any way, we appreciate your support. We appreciate your partnership. It helps us continue to do this work in the city of Youngstown where we are happy to be launching a new church plant. Finally, why don't you come and join us for a service? 323 Wick Avenue at the beautiful St. John's Episcopal Church. We meet in the chapel. Come and worship with us. We'd love to see you there. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Peace.